through the book of Revelation, and today, and we're nearing the end, today we come to the final judgment at the end of history, when all people will be resurrected and stand before God to be judged according to what they've done, and when the guilty will be cast into the lake of fire. Of course, we believe that the Bible is God's word, and so we approach the Bible not for just inspiration or um, to give us some happy thought to think about through the day, but as God's word spoken to us, which must be listened to and um, must be uh, swallowed even if it's disturbing. And of course, this particular subject is one that many find disturbing. Last week, of course, Satan was thrown into the lake of fire following the beast and the false prophet. And that's where we pick it up in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is actually the fourth glimpse in the book of Revelation that we've gotten of the Judgment Day. You might remember in chapter 6, 15 to 17, we saw people calling to the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath had come. Then in chapter 11, 15 to 18, we heard loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders said, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants. And then in chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, we saw one like a son of man, seated on a cloud with a golden crown on his head, and he swung his sharp sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then an angel swung his sickle, gathered the grape harvest, and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. So today we come to this fourth and final vision of the judgment day that we have in the, in the cycles of the book of Revelation. Verse 11 introduces this part of the vision. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And in this really we're being taken back to the very beginning of this vision, which actually started all the way back in chapter 4 of Revelation. When John was taken up into heaven and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne in the first two verses of Revelation 4. And now, here in this passage, we not only see this one sitting on the throne, but in dramatic fashion, his very presence makes the earth and sky flee away, and there's no place found for them, which means that they were just obliterated. They ceased to exist as a result of his showing up. And this is exactly what we read in uh, uh, other places of the scriptures as well, um, that the present earth and heaven will be destroyed to prepare for the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, which are just about to come in the book of Revelation in chapter 21. And uh, you might look at 2 Peter 3, 7 to 12, where it makes reference to this obliteration of the present creation three times in 7, 10, and verse 12. The next section, 12 and 13 of Revelation 20, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The Bible tells us that on the last day, all men, believers and non-believers, will be resurrected and stand before God on his throne to be judged. It's in many places. And that's what's going on here. And here we see there's a, there are books. And there is another book. The first books refer to the record. Not literally, probably, but the record in the mind of God of everything that people had done, everything they'd thought, everything they'd wanted, everything they'd said. And that's, uh, you know, based on that, it says they were judged according to what they'd done. And then the second thing that we're introduced to is the, the other book, the book of life, which is, of course, the list of those who belong to Christ, those who are his sheep, his little ones, his precious children. And then it continues in verse 14 and 15. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 1 Corinthians 15.26 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. 
And so here death is thrown into the lake of fire. It is no more. And Hades as well. Hades is, seems to be here the temporary place where the spirits of the dead go until the final day of resurrection. So now Hades is thrown into the lake of fire as well. And just as the beast and the false prophet and the devil and death and Hades have been thrown into the lake of fire, so the wicked, those who do not have their names written in the book of life, are thrown into the lake of fire as well. This is their second death. The first being when they you know, lived like we did and died and went to Hades. But now they've been raised and are sent to their second death in the lake of fire. Death and Hades are both temporary, but the lake of fire, we're told, lasts forever. It, uh, the Bible has many different images to refer to this horrific uh, judgment place that God uh, sends people at the end of time. Uh, it probably there's the outer darkness. There's the place where their worm does not die, which implies, you know, being attacked not just from without, but from within. Um, torment, uh, a day of terror, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, many of these places are related to fire, but probably the fact that they're so diverse uh, should lead us to think that these are not literal, uh, that these are just God giving us vivid uh, glimpses of, of the, the horrific nature of those of that place. It doesn't seem that God has shown much restraint in informing us about the horrors of that day. And, and you know, some people sort of think that, that God is bluffing like a parent who says, I'm really going to get you if you don't do, you know, this or that, and doesn't really mean that he's going to do you're going to throw them out the window or whatever he's threatening to do. But, but the God of truth doesn't bluff. And uh, it, it is a foolish thing to assume that God doesn't mean what he says, even if not in exact detail, but in, in intensity and in the nature of it. If anything, what John Gerstner uh, said was right when he said, that he thought they probably would wish it was a literal lake of fire. I don't think anybody in heaven, I'm sorry, I don't think anyone in hell will be saying, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So as we're confronted by this solemn, heavy reality, it's, uh, it's hard. Um, because the judgment day and the lake of fire are so disturbing and so troubling, there is a lot of pressure for us to avoid them and even to uh, avoid them as a church, as churches, and avoid them in the Word of God. Um, of course, some have the opposite temptation to overemphasize it or to trivialize it. Um, treat it glibly which might be even worse but 
There is a great temptation to avoid the embarrassment of this teaching. And you can see it because many different ways have been found to try to soften it or sweeten it or modify it, adjust it so it doesn't quite have the same edge to it. Um, there's universalism, which suggests that, that all mankind is saved through Christ even and that no one will eventually go there and that that go to hell or whatever the lake of fire and therefore that sort of takes the edge off or takes the reality of it makes it not a problem there's a second chance kind of theology which suggests that in the end everybody's going to be given a final chance to repent and you know it's going to be look do you really want to go there no you want to go here and there's annihilationism, which claims that the lake of fire is just a short-term affair. where And then people, after suffering for a while, are completely annihilated and their souls cease to exist. Others suggest that only those who specifically and consciously refuse the gospel are condemned. And those who have never heard... Um, are not in trouble. Um, there are those who claim that that the lake of fire really only means separation from God's blessings, from God's grace and His favor, and uh, that it's not necessarily a place of torment. All of these uh, clearly contradict the things that Jesus and the apostles and the book of Revelation teach us about this reality. Though I understand the, the desire to, to soften things because it is a hard thing. But we have to recognize that in the human heart there's a propensity to conform one's beliefs to one's preferences. And that's a temptation that we always want to fight against. Because if we give in to that temptation, we actually live in a dream world instead of living in the world that God made and living according to the word that God has spoken. We must face the fact that not only has the love of God been revealed in Jesus, but the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven, as Paul says in Romans 1.18. In fact, the revelation of God's wrath helps us to understand the grace more richly. I mean, think about how this reality looks from the perspective of an angel, for instance. An angel who stands in the presence of the Almighty Holy One Himself. He gets who God is. He understands His holiness, His justice. He well understands the lake of fire and the just wrath of God against sinners. What amazes Him is that God doesn't send all men there but has shown grace and mercy to some by sending his son to die and take the punishment for their sins. God never did that for their fellow angels who rebelled. 
And I believe that it's because we don't grasp God's holiness and justice that we tend to question or to downplay the reality of the everlasting torment that each of us deserves before God and which is indeed coming upon those who do not flee to Christ. If we begin to grasp the holiness and justice of the one who sits on the white throne, then we can trust him that he is not only just, more just than we are, but he's more wise than we are. And we are then able to let him be God instead of trying to take that role on ourselves. One uh, Facebook member, uh, one Facebook one on Facebook, one former member of our church um, who lost his faith was expressing outrage recently at this very passage, ridiculing how the Christian God is so unloving to send good people to the lake of fire just because they don't believe. But I think the better question is, how can you be so unloving? God has blessed you in thousands of ways with life and sustenance and protection. And yet instead of appreciating him and serving him, you despise him. When he so loved the world that he gave his son, instead of welcoming his son and worshiping him, you've rejected him and been like those who killed him. Others have asked, wasn't it actually Satan's fault? Why are the deceived being punished in the exact same way as the deceiver? Well, we read the story, like last week, of the, the devil being thrown at the lake of fire, and we all cheer about that. After all, he was the serpent of old who tricked Adam and Eve into sinning in the first place. But have you ever heard of the Stockholm Syndrome? In 1973, a convict on patrol, on parole, sorry, tried to rob a bank in Stockholm, Switzerland. And he took four employees hostage in one of the bank's vaults for six days. Strangely, when the when the hostages were finally released, none of them could, would testify against their captor. Instead, they actually began raising money for his defense. So they had to be punished for their role in his crime, even though originally they were his victims and his captives. And I think that's a good illustration of mankind even though they were originally deceived by the serpent, instead of repudiating that influence, mankind has chosen to continue living in the lies, even though they know the truth. So, as Paul says in Romans 1, they are without excuse. Now, there's another issue here that I want to bring up. Verse 13 says that people are judged according to what they have done. 
And there are many times that the Bible says this. But there's a big problem with what this means. It's commonly assumed that this merely means that each person is judged by how many good things they've done versus how many bad things they've done during their lives. Sort of like Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Santa gives good gifts as rewards to good little children, but he gives a piece of coal to those who have done bad things like crying or pouting or not sleeping when you're supposed to be sleeping. So here's the problem. Some people pout more than other people, but everybody pouts a little bit. Some people are selfish more than other people, but all of us are selfish every once in a while. Some people are ungrateful more than other people, but all of us are ungrateful to some extent. Some people worry more than other people, but all of us worry once in a while at least. The fact is that people's lives are on a spectrum of how much they pout and how much they act selfishly and how ungrateful they are and how much they worry. So you would think that God's judgment, if it was just, it would also be on a spectrum. But that's not the case here and elsewhere. When the perfectly wise and just God judges the wide spectrum of humanity. He sends them to only two destinations which are extremely opposite to each other. Some get thrown into the lake of fire and others exalted into the glorious city of God. Now that would make sense if all humanity were made up of Mother Teresa's and Adolf Hitler's. But they're not, are they? There's a big spectrum in between these two in terms of beliefs, in terms of treatment of others, in terms of the way they live their lives. There have been, of course, attempts to invent a way to look at this which is by a spectrum of results in, in place of the two different places that people are sent. But it's not in the Bible. The whole concept of purgatory comes to mind. But there's nothing here or elsewhere which would imply some kind of middle place, some kind of purgatory. There are only two destinations here, plain and simple. There isn't even the slightest suggestion of a third alternative where one gets purified by fire for thousands of years before you're worthy to enter into the heavenly city. But if there is no hint of a spectrum in the destinations to which we're headed, how could it possibly be just to have only two? How can it be that when God looks at humanity with his perfect vision, he sees not so much a wide spectrum, but two distinct kinds of people? It doesn't make sense. 
if indeed the Santa Claus model is the correct way to interpret the idea that God judges by what people do. Maybe the fact that there are only two ultimate outcomes, the lake of fire and the city of God, implies that the meaning of being judged by what we have done isn't what we may have assumed. What else could it mean? When God looks at a person's life, what does God see that we don't see? Well, in order to understand this, we need to look at what the passage says about the book of life. Because you see in verse 13, it says that people will be judged by what they had done. But it also says in verse 15, that salvation is determined by whether or not someone's name is written in the book of life. So these two must be the same somehow. The people cast into the lake of fire for what they've done are the same people whose names are written in the book of life. And the people who who ascend into the new Jerusalem because of what they've done are the same people as those whose names are written in the book of life. To complicate matters in other places of the New Testament, though not here in this passage, are many places that tell us that people are saved by faith. But the key to understanding all of this is to realize that these things aren't in contradiction to each other. Rather, they are designed to interpret each other. Those who are cast into the lake of fire on account of what they did are those who believe and those whose names are not written. I'm sorry. Those who are cast into the lake of fire are those who don't believe and those whose names are not written in the book of life. And those who ascend to the new Jerusalem on account of what they did are those who believe and those whose names are written in the book of life. The only way that this makes sense, in my opinion, is if we think of it this way. Before the creation of the world, God chose some to be his own. And their names, therefore, were written in his book of life. And then, at some point in the life of each one, they were brought to faith by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And this work in their hearts also transforms the way that they think, the things that they desire, the way they live, the things they do. One thing they all do that no one else on earth does They love God. And so when God looks at a person, he sees all this. It all goes together in one package. It's either all there or none of it's there. We get more detail about about this from the fuller title of the book of life. For in other places of Revelation, it's not just called the book of life, but in 13.8, it's called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And 21.27, next chapter, it says the Lamb's book of life. This helps us to see that the distinguishing factor has to do with the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. You see, all men are sinners and deserving of God's wrath. But those whose names are written in the book of life, 
those who believe and love the Lamb do not suffer judgment for their sins because the Lamb has already suffered for them. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. That's a quote from Revelation 1.5. By His blood He ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 5.9. These people are saved through the Lamb's righteous deeds and especially through His death. So... Some kings and queens go into the lake of fire. Some go to the new Jerusalem. Some slaves go to the lake of fire. Some go to the new Jerusalem. Some pastors go to the lake of fire. Some go to the new Jerusalem. Some children who die before they become adults go into the lake of fire. Some go to the new Jerusalem. The determining factor isn't whether they're uh, they're dead. I'm sorry. There's, the determining factor is whether their dead and sinful hearts have been made alive by the power of God, which inevitably leads to a life transformed by God, or whether they remain with dead and unyielding hearts. So how do you know? How do you know if your heart is dead or if God has made you alive? Well, do you love Jesus? How do you know if your name is written on the book of life? Well, one good question to ask yourself is do you want your name to be written in the book of life? Do you want your heart to be alive in Christ? And how much do you want it? Do you want it more than anything else in life? Are you willing to let everything else go for that? The great thing is that if you have an abiding passion to be in the book of life, then you are in it. Not because you want it, but because God has worked in your heart to want it. So we come to this sober scene. And uh, there's, for everyone, it should be humbling. It should be uh, sobering. For some... It's the wrath that we must flee from. And to flee from the wrath, we must flee to Christ. For others, it's the wrath from which we have fled. And the wrath which shows us the grace of God. Because this is where we should be if it weren't for the the grace of God. This is the wrath that we deserve but have been spared from. As we come to the table this morning, we we partake of the feast of the Lamb of God. And in partaking, we're saying, Christ, the Lamb of God, 
your death for my life. You took my place. I want to have all of you. I want to feed upon you. I want to be filled with you. I want to be yours forever. Presbyterian churches don't usually have altar calls. But it's often said that the Lord's table is the altar call. Where everyone is called to come to Jesus and partake. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. And uh, we, we look to you, O oh Lord, as the source of our salvation for Lord. We know that left to ourselves, there's nothing in us that would have sought you. But we praise you, O Lord, for the work done in our hearts. For eyes to see and ears to hear. And dear Lord, we pray for any here this morning that don't yet have that ability to see you. That still are outside of Christ. Oh Lord, may they hear your knocking. May they hear your word. And be given grace to come. Bless us now as we partake of this meal together. May we draw near to Christ and celebrate him together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.